You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. A journey to a place of trust. That's my favorite phrase from my notes on a conversation that I had not long ago with reporter Jiayoung Fan. It's how she describes the early stages of her work when she's just beginning to investigate a story. If she's going to convince a source to really talk to her, she told me, she first has to show them that she knows how to listen. I first encountered Jiayoung's writing in a piece that she wrote for The New Yorker, where she's a staff writer. The article was about ghost scams. Jiayoung had noticed a trend in these crimes, which are often committed in the Chinatown community. The targets tended to be middle-aged to elderly Chinese women. The way the scam works is that one of these women is approached by a stranger, and this stranger tells the woman that she's somehow been captured by an evil spirit. If she wants to avoid a terrible fate, the stranger warns her, she should allow this stranger to take temporary possession of whatever valuables she might have, like cash or jewelry, so that the stranger can bless the valuables and remove the curse. And then, when the victim hands over, say, a bag of jewelry, the scammer takes it and swaps it out for a decoy bag that they've filled with junk so that it weighs about the same amount as the bag of jewelry. They return the junk bag to the victim, who assumes they're getting their jewelry back. And then, before the victim realizes what's happened, the scammer disappears. So anyway, not long after I read Jiayoung's piece, I found myself producing an episode of a podcast that Jiayoung was going to be a guest on. So I called her for a pre-interview, and that's when she said this thing about the journey to a place of trust. Jiayoung said it wasn't easy to convince a lot of the women that she spoke to for her ghost scam story to talk. After all, they had just been ripped off by a stranger. Why on earth would they open up to the next stranger, Jiayoung in this case, who shows up at their door asking a bunch of personal questions? But on top of that, Jiayoung said, the women who are targeted in ghost scams aren't used to people paying much attention to them in the first place. She described these women as a population unaccustomed to being visible. And yet, in spite of those obstacles, ultimately, Jiayoung successfully persuaded her sources to open up about their experiences. And that, Jiayoung told me, is thanks in part to her mom. Jiayoung's mom is a Chinese immigrant who, Jiayoung says, has lived her entire life in the U.S. with a sense of lurking danger, a fear of traps that she thinks she might fall into. Jiayoung said that her awareness of the nuances of her mother's experience helped her imagine her way into the fears and anxieties of the ghost scam victims and to form a connection with them that eventually made them feel safe to tell her their stories. All of which left me wanting to know the story of Jiayoung and her mom. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this week, Jiayoung and her mother make the journey from China to America. My mother and I landed in JFK Airport, our six suitcases bulging with rolls of hand-sewn bedding, bags of Sichuanese chili peppers, a cast-iron wok, 
and her stethoscope. And back again. Jia Yang Fan of Chongqing, China. One article begins. Even though her body flows with Chinese blood, the blood of the descendants of the Yellow Emperor, she has decided to metamorphose into an American citizen and denigrate her Chinese face. Over the next two episodes, Jiang tells the story of a woman the world seems determined to overlook and what it's like to be the daughter who refuses to let that happen. Now the two of us became the embodiment of the Chinese phrase, Xiang Yi Wei Ming, mutual reliance for life. Part one begins right after the break. Stay tuned. The messages wishing me a gruesome death arrive slowly at first, and then all at once. I'm condemned to be burned, raped, tortured. Some include a video of joyful dancing at a funeral, with fists pounding on a wooden casket. The hardest ones to read take aim at my mother, who has been immobilized by the neurodegenerative disease ALS since 2014. Most of the messages originate in China, but my mother and I live in New York. As the COVID lockdown has swept the city, I find out that the health aides she depends on are to be banned from her facility and take to Twitter to publicize my despair. But this personal plight as a daughter unexpectedly attracts the attention of Chinese nationalists who have long been displeased with my work as a writer reporting on China. In short order, my predicament is politicized and packaged into a viral sensation. Has your mother died yet? China 15Z0DJ wants to know. Your mother will be dead. Ha ha. 1.4 billion people wish for you to join her in hell. Ha ha. At some point, I stop scrolling. The messages I dread the most come not from internet strangers, but from people who know me. My aunt, my uncle, my mother's childhood best friend. On WeChat, they link to various Chinese language articles about me and ask, have you read this? The next question would be almost funny if it weren't so painfully earnest. Do you know this, Jiayang fan? I do not presume to know this character, but countless social media posts, video blogs, and comments describe her as a creature driven by self-loathing. I find a story about my mother and me in the Global Times, a state-controlled Chinese newspaper with 28 million followers on Weibo. It has been picked up by the country's most popular news aggregator and then energetically disseminated on various platforms. The more I read, the more fascinated I become by the creation of this alter ego. I'm watching a portrait of myself being painted, minute by minute, Anonymous hands contributing dabs and strokes. The more lurid, the better. Jia Yang Fan of Chongqing, China, followed her parents to the U.S. at the age of eight. One article begins, Even though her body flows with Chinese blood, the blood of the descendants of the Yellow Emperor, she has decided to metamorphose into an American citizen and denigrate her Chinese face as an indisputable burden. 
Creatively, the same words are used as a voiceover accompanying a video post in which images of my mother's face and mine, culled from social media, are rendered in traditional Chinese brush painting style. A computerized female voice describes Jiayang Fan as a columnist at the New York Times. Evidently, this piece of fact-checking fell by the wayside. One who makes a living by smearing her homeland. Not only have I falsely accused China of being the geographic origin of the coronavirus pandemic, I also had the nerve to support the pro-democracy terrorists in Hong Kong. Deliciously, once the U.S. finds itself in the grip of the pandemic, Jiayang Fan gets her comeuppance. It turns out that her mother is on a ventilator, and when medical equipment runs short, it seems that she is to be summarily unplugged from the machine as a result of American racism. She might believe herself to be an American, the article notes, but she never expected Americans would treat her like this. Many articles and posts are illustrated with grainy cell phone screenshots of a woman in her 60s in a hospital bed. Her face is bloated and shiny with tears. A thick suction tube protrudes from her throat. In the upper right corner of each image, in a smaller box, is a younger woman whose twisted, wailing face matches that of the older woman. We quickly understand that this is Jiayang Fan in a video chat with her mother. The article invites us to behold the humiliation that befits a villain. There's some confusion about whether Fan's mother has died. She has not. But the moral of the story is clear enough. Despite Fan's sycophantic worship of America, her adopted country does not reward the depraved traitor. Jia Young Fan is reminiscent of the heroes and villains of the revolutions that I used to write about as a first grader. My hometown, Chongqing, was briefly a nationalist capital at the end of the Civil War in 1949. My first school outing, at the age of six, was to Zha Zidong and Bai Gongguan, concentration camps where nationalists incarcerated, tortured, and executed hundreds of communists. One prisoner in particular captured my imagination. Song Zhenzhong, a boy my own age known as Little Turniphead, because his bony skull appeared outlandishly large atop his malnourished body. The son of high-ranking communists, Little Turniphead was less than a year old when he was captured with his parents, and grew up in prison, passing messages to his parents' comrades in neighboring cells. On the eve of the communist victory, as nationalists prepared to flee, he was shot and became sanctified as the revolution's youngest martyr. By second grade, I'd written several reflections on the heroism of Little Turniphead. Imitating what I read in my school primers, I mastered the formula. In my essays, people were forever sacrificing themselves rescuing injured classmates at great personal cost. All this moral valor was pretty much the opposite of what I observed in the army compound where my mother and I lived, where daily life abounded in pedestrian deceptions. Didn't my mother, who I idolized, sell her egg coupons in the black market? 
And hadn't she, as an army doctor, given my teacher medications for minor ailments in order to exempt me from corporal punishment? Still, the hagiographies and demonologies of official party history formed the basis of my education. Jia Yang Fan, in her small way, bears all the hallmarks of a new villain. Her crime, turning her back on her motherland, is one I have been taught to revile since I was two, when my father left for America. It was 1986, and he had been selected to study biology at Harvard as one in the first wave of visiting scholars in the U.S. In my mind, my father resembled America itself, an abstraction that gestured toward a gauzy ideal. That he was chosen to go there rendered him special, the way that America, the richest country on earth, was special. At the same time, America's ruthless capitalism and unapologetic dominance also made the country sinister and soulless. And so, although our government had sent my father to the U.S., his presence there now made him suspect. If I had some intimation that my mother was working to secure our passage to the West, it was hard to reconcile with her public protestations to the contrary. Although she griped about the red tape hampering our departure, she remained unflinchingly devoted to the Communist Party, whose patriotic hymns she hummed daily while she rinsed the dishes. In 1992, as we prepared to leave, Adults sometimes asked me if we were going to America. Were they truly curious, or did they already know the answer? Innocent questions were just as likely to be perilous tripwires. Before answering, I watched my mother's eyes for instruction and waited for her gaze to guide me. When I solemnly shook my head, I felt myself not to be lying exactly, but deflecting bodily harm. Maybe such reflexive doublethink shows me to be as devious as my online persecutors alleged. But their fixation on my disloyalty to China does not encompass the existential complexity of my betrayal. For what is an immigrant but a mind mired in contradictions and doublings, stranded in unresolved splits of the self? Sometimes I have wondered if these people knew something about Jia Yang Fan that had always eluded me. For them, there's not an ounce of doubt, whereas uncertainty is the country where I most belong. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. On July 4th, a date that had no meaning to me except that it was exactly a month short of my eighth birthday, my mother and I landed in JFK Airport, our six suitcases bulging with rolls of hand-sewn bedding, bags of Sichuanese chili peppers, a cast-iron wok, and her stethoscope. My mother now found herself, at the age of 40, living in a tiny studio apartment in New Haven, Connecticut. My father was at Yale by then, with a husband, who she soon discovered, was carrying on an affair. Within a year and a half, he had left us, and she was faced with eviction. She had less than $200 to her name and spoke little English. Now the two of us became the embodiment of the Chinese phrase, xiang yi wei ming, mutual reliance for life. 
My mother knew that in a vastly unequal and under-resourced world, she would have to secure whatever small advantage she could. Born to party cadres who, as soldiers, had been wounded in the battlefield in the quest to realize Mao's vision of communist China, my mother had been spared the worst of the Great Famine and the Cultural Revolution. A brutal, unsentimental pragmatism shaped her deepest instincts. Her decision to become a physician sprang not from a passion for medicine, but from the realization that this was her only path to a college education. My parents met in graduate school, and after I was born, a product of China's one-child policy, entrenched sexism dictated that she should shift her focus from her career to fending for me, her only child. Shortly before we were to be evicted, a man with a handlebar mustache came to disconnect our phone. A kindly socialist in his 50s named Jim, he took pity on us and invited us to stay with his family in West Haven. Desperation burnished in my mother a raw, enterprising grit. In broken English, she told Jim that her one wish was to give her daughter a good education. He revealed what seemed to my mother like a valuable piece of insider info. The best public schools were in the wealthiest zip codes. After months of trudging to the local library, where Jim told her that newspapers could be read for free, she answered an ad to be a live-in housekeeper in a Connecticut town that she pronounced Green Witch. My mother did not believe herself to be something bold or daring. She had simply devised a Chinese workaround to a quintessentially American problem. In the mid-90s, Greenwich was one of the wealthiest places in the country, and as blindingly white as the blizzards I was encountering for the first time in New England. A good education had previously been a nebulous concept in my mother's mind. But with the help of the local library and her employers, it now acquired the concreteness of a blueprint. Public school in a fancy neighborhood could pave the way for a scholarship at a private school, then boarding school, and a prestigious liberal arts college, a conveyor belt of opportunities carrying me toward the East Coast elite and away from her. During my first year at Greenwich Academy, I was the only Asian student in my grade. Early on, a classmate whose mother was friends with my mother's employer plopped down next to me on the school bus and asked a question whose answer she already knew perfectly well. So your mother is a maid? Not long afterward, another classmate, an elfin-faced blonde, asked me how I had escaped being killed in China. You know, she said, because they murder all the girl babies over there. In a current events class, I was struck by the teacher's deployment of pronouns, us and them, the Americans and the Chinese. When I tried to answer a question about China, I was flummoxed by the grammar required. As the only Chinese-born person in the room, was I meant to say they or we? In the first house where my mother worked, we lived in a maid's room and shared the bed. Everything resembled brightly wrapped gifts for children. Sea blue twill and salmon seersucker, 
gingham checks, and cabana stripes. Nothing matched, and everything was monogrammed. I had no friends, so I watched a lot of TV. One Saturday night, I was astonished to discover a half an hour of news from CCTV, the state channel of the People's Republic of China. Those 30 minutes every week bookended by soaring Communist Party tunes and montages of the Chinese flag unfurling against hammer and sickle took on an inexpressible sanctity. For a year, my mother and I spent our Saturday nights sitting on our bed under our chintz coverlet watching the party broadcast. The day it mysteriously vanished from the air, replaced by programming in English, I wept as if some part of me had been scraped out. The needs of Greenwich households were mercurial, and every few years, my mother would have to scan the want ads again. The stress of not being able to find another position close to my school suspended her in a state of near-permanent anxiety. In the mid-90s, she developed facial rashes, which mapped their way across the plane of her cheeks and blistered on her upper lip. The briskness with which they ravaged her face tormented my mother. It was as if her body were rebelling against the downward trajectory of her life, from a respected physician bestowing small favors on her daughter's teachers to a housekeeper who dressed her daughter in hand-me-downs from her employer's children. Soon, she was plagued by pains that migrated through her body. When, after working all day, she collapsed on the sofa in our room, she would probe her abdomen, kidney, liver, bowel, trying to find a cancer that she'd become convinced was there. The lump is inoperable, an immediate death sentence, she would say. My mother's worries scared me, but she could share them with no one else. Years of having only a useless child for company hardened her despair and loneliness into a rage that could gust into violent, seething storms. Once, out of sheer horror that I might lose my mother, I suggested that she see a doctor. I knew our situation well enough by then. We didn't have health insurance. To be apprehensive about my boldness. She'd likely berate me for not understanding that a visit to an official American institution was too expensive, too complicated, too intimidating. My mother had been sewing a button that had fallen off a tartan skirt, part of my school uniform, and my question caused her eyes to flit up and settle accusingly on me. Do you think a doctor would get her own body wrong, she challenged? That it was an illness erupting from the crushing weight of powerlessness and shame was not a diagnosis she could afford to obtain or bear to imagine. Our story continues after the break. Ghost family, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I, your humble ghost host, once played a very small role in a John Cameron Mitchell movie. And the story of how I got that role is possibly one of the strangest experiences I have ever had. It's a story you can hear right now, if that is, you're a member of the Kindred Spirits. 
our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get bonus content, like my John Cameron Mitchell story, to accompany every episode of Family Ghosts. And they get to hear all of our stories ad-free. More than that, though, their support makes the work we do here at WALTFM possible. I know it might seem strange for me to ask for your financial support when you hear ads during the breaks of our show. But the fact is that while I am grateful for those sponsorships, they don't come close to covering the costs of doing this work at the level of quality you expect. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And either way, thank you for listening. My mother never did develop the cancer she dreaded would kill her. But in the fall of 2011, at the age of 59, she received a far harsher sentence. She would be buried alive by a disease she had never heard of. As ALS gradually paralyzed her while leaving her intellect intact, our years were filled with ICU visits, emergency surgeries, stays in nursing homes, and wrenching conversations with strangers about the logistics of death. Then, in 2014, after my mother could no longer breathe without a ventilator, she was moved to the Henry J. Carter Specialty Hospital in Harlem, which I was told was the only long-term acute care facility in Manhattan that could take her. Early on, it was clear that my mother needed more help than Carter could provide. To avoid bed sores, she had to be turned every two hours. The mucus that gathered in her airway had to be suctioned every half hour. Because she was on a ventilator and had had a tracheotomy, she could no longer produce sound, and we had to devise a new way of speaking. I would hold up an alphabet chart and trail through the letters with my finger until a blink from my mother told me to stop. And letter by letter, a message would emerge. My mother's English remains rudimentary. Even when she could speak, she often resorted to placeholders like this, thing, here, and stuff. Now, her sentences wove heedlessly between Chinese and Chinglish, urgent with demands I could neither decode nor meet. I lived on a lazy boy next to her hospital bed, which I positioned so that our faces were visible to each other if either of us happened to open our eyes in the middle of the night. Not that my mother could sleep much. Her body resisted the rhythm of the ventilator, and several times a day, a rapid response team had to manually pump air into her choked lungs. Every second that she couldn't see me left her petrified. I stopped showering. After a few months, it became apparent to both of us that I needed to go back to work. But how could I abandon her to strangers? I looked for an apartment near the hospital and trained a shifting roster of healthcare aides. Fujianese immigrants and the hardiest, most unself-pitying women I know. Like my mother, they had survived in America by working lowly jobs to support their families and went about their chores with the quiet stamina of those who never take a penny for granted. Alternating their duties week by week, they tended to her 24 hours a day, never even missing Chinese New Year. 
A former athlete, my mother had loved physical activities. Not long before her diagnosis, she developed a fondness for paddleboarding. Could there have been a worse devastation for her than progressive imprisonment in her body? As she lost the ability to move even a finger, her temper occasionally slashed those around her as would a sharp object in the hands of an unruly child. I was not immune to its cuts in my daily visits, but it was often the aides who bore the brunt. My mother currently has two aides, Joe and Ying, and needs them to survive in the way she needs the ventilator for her next breath. But she agonizes about the exorbitant costs of full-time help, which Medicare and Medicaid do not cover. You should be investing in an apartment in Queens, she insists. I tell her to quit fretting and do not say anything to her whenever the numbers fail to add up. The process of making it all work financially is trying and mortifying. When discussing the details with anyone, a friend, a stranger, an insurance rep, I'm afraid of losing face. The phrase comes from Chinese, but the English inadequately conveys the importance of mianzi, self-respect, social standing, which Lu Xun, the father of modern Chinese literature, described as the guiding principle of the Chinese mind. My mother has always knelt at the altar of mianzi, an aspiration of which ALS makes a spectacular mockery. You may think it's embarrassing to slur your speech and limp, but wait until you're being spoon-fed and pushed around in a wheelchair, all of which will seem trivial once you can no longer wash or wipe yourself. The progress of the disease is a forced march toward the vanishing point of mianzi. When my mother was first given her diagnosis, she became obsessed with the idea of why. Why her? Why now? And above all, why an illness that would subject her to the kind of public humiliation she feared more than death itself? When she could still operate her first-generation iPad, my mother gave me a contact list of everyone she was still in touch with in China and told me that, except for her siblings, no one must know of her affliction. Such self-imposed isolation seemed like madness to me, but she preferred to cut her friends out of her life rather than admit the indignity of her compromised state. Her body's insurrection, my mother believes, is her punishment for her prideful strivings in America. There's a Chinese saying that my mother likes to use about ruined reputations. You could never regain your purity, even if you jumped into the Yellow River. Not long ago, I found a journal she kept soon after we arrived in America, just when her life was beginning to unravel. Her words made clear that going back to China would mean intolerable disgrace. In a society that, in instances of domestic collapse, invariably faulted the woman, Yet to stay in this alien country, subsisting on menial work, was to peer over a cliff into the unknown. In excruciating indecision, my mother wondered if it would not be easier to die. Letting go would be a release. But what would happen to Yang Yang, she asked, using her pet name for me. There might not be a way out for me, but there are still opportunities yet for Yang Yang.
next time on Family Ghosts. In the months after my mother received her ALS diagnosis, I would sometimes conduct an experiment. In bed, after a deep breath, I would will my body to be completely still. The sensation was like pausing in the middle of a dark forest and hearing the ambient noise of birds and leaves for the first time. This is what it feels like to be my mother, I would think, to be imprisoned in your body. When the lockdown was announced in New York, I thought about this experience occurring on the scale of an entire city, as all infrastructure and commerce ground to a halt. My mother was now incarcerated in a body that was confined in a sealed facility, which was trapped inside a lockdown city. That's coming up in two weeks, in part two of Motherland by Jai Young Fan. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Motherland was written and read by Jai Young Fan and first appeared in the pages of The New Yorker magazine, where she's a staff writer. Check the show notes for links to Jai Young's piece on ghost scams, as well as her complete archive of writing for the magazine. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Family Ghosts comes out every other week, And if you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between new episodes, please check out Fisher Family Ghosts. It's a recap podcast for the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary, and which, it won't surprise you to learn, was a great source of inspiration for this very podcast. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under, and then talk about the ways the themes, characters, and story influence our own approaches to storytelling, and our perceptions of our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back in two weeks with the second installment of Jiang Fan's story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then. <laughs>